Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account, go to squarespace.com slash twip. This week on Twip, Lightroom grows to three, Photo Plus Expo Roundup, and an inspiring chat with Jeff Shiwi. All that and more on episode 113 of This Week in Photography. And welcome back to another exciting episode of This Week in Photography. We've got a lot of news to talk about today. Um, lots of things happened over the last week. Uh, but first, let's do some introductions. On the show today, we've got Mr. Ron Brinkman. Hey, Ron. Hello. I mean, and I'm just on the edge of needing to sneeze. But I think it's going <laughs> You should just let it go. Let it go. Get it out, Get it out of the way. I'm telling you. <laughs> uh, and a man who I was just having coffee with, what, scant hours ago in New York City, and now I'm on the West Coast, Steve Simon. I don't want Ron to sneeze on me. I'm just protecting <laughs> myself here. Hey, Steve, Hello, everybody. you know people, people can't see you. People can't see you holding up your hands on the radio. Right, fair enough. Oh, wait, wait a sec. Let me just make a point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I miss you, Fred. I miss you. I was just with you yesterday. I miss you already. Thank you so much for showing me around your fair city. It was awesome. And uh, that was a great picture you, I took of you. <laughs> you and your transportation. Steve Steve gets around New York on a really cool Schwinn. Um, and we did a little test. We met in what, what, what town was that? Chelsea? So uh, we went from... We went from my hotel to Chelsea. Oh, yeah. We he went from 50, 51st Street and Lexington. Uh, Fred got in a cab. I got on my bicycle. I got to the Apple Store on 14th Street uh, probably about 15 minutes before you did, Fred, on my yeah, bicycle. Yeah, 15, that's, 15 that's, minutes and $18 less. Exactly. <laughs> and that's a couple of miles. So it just proves my theory that bicycling, if you can avoid the taxis, is the best way to get around Manhattan. Yeah, Steve was waiting in the store saying, hey, where are you? And I'm like, uh, I'm on the Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> and, and also on the show, of course, running the controls and the wheels of steel is none other than Mr. Alex Lindsay. Hey, Alex. Hello. See, there they are. There are the wheels of steel right there. <laughs> Look at them. Look at them. They're not actually round, but they're still wheels. And you know why I say that, Alex? Because yes. uh, in, in your past, you were a DJ. I was. And you actually actually had wheels of steel that you used to spin on you know these, most people don't know that i was i i, I and I, I was a radio jogger except i have to admit the radio station was much simpler than uh than leo's uh twit cottage uh, this this was requires it? much more uh cerebral uh power except for the fact that the radio station was constantly breaking down oh wait so so the uh <laughs> so the um but we have you know all i had was pots and uh on <laughs> that was pretty much it nice <laughs> Very cool. Well, Alex, before we jump into the show, you want to tell us who is our lovely sponsor for this episode? We, of course, would love to thank uh, Squarespace. Twip is brought to you, of course, by Squarespace, squarespace.com, a fast and easy way to publish high-quality website or blog. For a free trial or 10% off your new account, go to squarespace.com slash twip uh, and use the offer code TWIP. All right. Well, with that, let's jump into the news. Uh, like I was just saying at the intro, Steve and I were hanging out in New York together, and we were there for, well, I was there for Photo Plus. Steve lives there. 
Um, but uh, Steve did a nice talk. Thanks to all the TWIP listeners who went to support Mr. Simon. So, Steve, how did your talk go? Well, my, my talk went very well. I had uh, quite a good crowd in there, and I sort of did a show of hands. And there must have been like 50 TWIPers there. Uh, my awesome. talk was called 10 Steps to Becoming a Great Photographer. Unfortunately, um, we ran out of time. Um, I think I only got to maybe eight of the steps. So I Cliffhanger. For those of you, step nine is take that lens cap off. So I, I think that's an important one. I'm a little worried about the uh, people that were in there. But no, it was yeah. great. Everything went well. And um, there was a lot of people that came up that listened to TWIP. And they were very enthusiastic. Hey, Fred, I know they were crowding around you at the Drobo booth. Yeah, it was. I was pleasantly surprised i mean the the show itself we had a little tiny booth way off in the corner and uh, i was thinking nobody's going to come over here but it was a literally a constant deluge of traffic all the way through through it i was talking from the time the show opened to the time it ended and the the people that were coming in you know a, a large percentage of them were there to say hey i watched this show so to all you folks that came and stopped by took the time to come over and say hi and shake my hand thank you I appreciate it, and I appreciate you listening to the show. It was awesome. Yeah, and if I had a nickel for every time I heard, you know, what is Ron Brinkman really like? I mean, I got tired of hearing <laughs> you'd have, that. You'd have a nickel. Last... <laughs> <laughs> you guys should have been there. You guys should have been there. No, it was it was a good time. So, Steve, uh, you, unlike me being shackled to the booth, had time to sort of roam around the show. What was your general perception of how trafficked it was compared to last year? And did you see anything that you think was sort of, I'm glad I went to the show because I never would have saw this thing otherwise? Well, personally, when I, when I go to Photo Plus, I, I never seem to have enough time to sort of see everything. And, and, and once the doors open, it gets really crowded. As you know, it's kind of hard to maneuver in there. But mm -hmm. um, being in the speaker's lounge, I was kind of listening in to some of the chatter that was going on. I think there was a real worry in this, uh, economic climate as to how successful this show was going to be. But um, you could rest assured that I think um, the, the show exceeded uh, the organizers, uh, the PDN people's uh, expectations. Um, there was a lot of traffic. The, the traffic was good. And um, it just sort of goes to show maybe it's an economic indicator of better things to come. But I think there was a real nervousness as to kind of how successful things would be. But as it turned out, uh, I think people uh, under the circumstances are really happy. As far as running around the, the show floor, I, I didn't have too much of an opportunity to really look in too much. I know there was a lot of interest in wedding photography, both in the sessions as well as um, on the show floor. There were a lot of book people, et cetera, et cetera. That seems to be the one area of photography from a business standpoint that, that seems to continue to, to grow. Steve, can I ask you a question about that, actually? Did you see much of a convergence of uh, wedding photographers talking about video? Well, I know that um, there was uh, guys like Vince Laferre was talking about the whole uh, DSLR cinematography thing. And interesting, I popped into his, um, his session for just a brief time. And I think a lot of the people that were in there uh, are interested in, in video and uh, are fans of Vince. But when you see what he does, I mean, he's really taking it uh, kind of a step beyond, and it's probably closer to cinematography because he had a lot of the equipment that he would use, and a lot of it is kind of, even though it's, uh, from by, by your standards, uh, Alex, maybe sort of inexpensive and, and smaller, it's not like the big Hollywood stuff, 
but it's still probably beyond uh, what most people are gonna gonna play with. As far as convergence with video, certainly it was talked about at the various manufacturers, uh, Nikon, and they had their new cameras with video, and they were talking about it and showing it. Um, but I, I didn't get a sense that there was uh, kind of a, a moving towards video yet in terms of the the product that was being uh, showcased at the show. Yeah, I don't know maybe yeah. you did. No, no, I didn't. I I did have a, a some time to just sort of walk around and get a get a cursory feel for what the vibe was. And as usual, the the big players, uh, Nikon had the gigantic booth, and they were showing the new D3s, and had lots of amazing speakers there. Uh, same with Canon. Canon was there showing their new wares, and had a a humongous booth right next to Nikon. Sony was there, and um, you know, of course, Epson and all the all the usual players were there, except. Of course, Apple wasn't there, and Adobe wasn't there this year. They were there last year, but they weren't there this year, even though they announced uh, a new update to Lightroom. So that was – a lot of people were wondering about that. But, you know, I would chalk that up to, hey, we could – you know, if if I was Adobe and it was, hey, we'll go to this trade show or we'll just not maybe lay off this 100 people. <laughs> I would keep the 100 people and not go to the trade show. So, you know, it was uh, – overall, it seemed like a really good, a really good traffic show. There was a lot of people there. And a lot of just camera stuff all packed into one spot. So if you're if you're anything like any of us on the show, and you go into Photo Plus, it's kind of like just being a kid at Toys R Us or something. Because every everywhere you look, they're like, oh, I want that background, and I want that camera, and I want that tripod, and oh, Low Pro's here with new bags, and you know, bags, there's little bags. little stuff a lot everywhere. Of bags. A- a- yeah. Fred, there are a lot of bags there, and of course, we all have bag problems. So that was always fun to check out. Think Tank yeah. had a lot of great stuff. Lopro has a kind of a suitcase bag where it, built into the handle is a tripod uh, thing. So you can mount your camera on the rolling case, which is kind of a brilliant idea. I mean, you can put a light on it, a flash on it, or a camera, which why not yeah. utilize the bag when you've got it in the field? You know, and one, one last thing on Photo Plus, I did learn something interesting. So while I was flying in New York, I had this little sort of laptop low pro bag that my my 15 inch macbook pro slides in and then and all the things that i think plan to work on and cables and all that stuff are in there sort of my everyday bag but the zipper broke so i was kind of holding it sideways to keep it open i figured hey i'm going to photo plus low pro will be there and i'll just buy a new one and replace it so i go over to the low pro booth and i find the guy i'm like hey this is what happened i want to replace it with the exact same one and uh, he goes, well, that one's out of stock, but you do know we have a lifetime warranty on our product, so we'll send you a new one. <laughs> you know, so I was like, well, hello. Well, that's a much better deal. <laughs> that was a great deal. Well, so I'll take what, that one for free. Exactly, but the, you know, I still had to go home with a little duct tape on my old bag, but you know, I saved a couple hundred dollars. So that's great. All right. Uh, so, also in the news today, or in the news for this week, I guess, Canon has announced um, the 1D Mark IV, a brand new camera body. Um, Mr. Ron Brinkman, you want to take us through what's, uh, what the specs are on that camera? Yeah, this is a, it's a big upgrade to their uh, flagship model. Mark IV is a new one. Uh, the nice thing about it is it seems that there is now really becoming this good focus on, on ISO, uh, you know, low light capability and the performance. Uh, not as much on megapixels. It's a 16 megapixel camera. Um, interesting to know that this is a crop sensor camera, 1.3 crop factor on it. But I think the real you know, noteworthy part of this is that uh, Canon stepped up and matched what Nikon's new high-end cameras are doing with a maximum ISO of 102,400, which is obviously big. 
Um, yeah. This can, camera also shoots 1080p video, and the 1080p runs at a very high ISO, too. I think it runs at... Uh, ooh, I'm in front of me. Well, I think you can use the same ISO, can't you? You just... You just uh, you, you, you... No, I think there's actually a, a limit to the video shooting, but it's still much higher. It's a very sensitive uh, right. camera for shooting video. Uh, ship date, December 9th, so mm. relatively soon. And, just uh, in time for yeah. Christmas. Yeah, it's it's heating up. I mean, uh, it's I, I just love the fact that there's just this constant back and forth between the two leaders in the field, and uh, each one is is a relatively significant upgrade. Yeah. What what did you uh what you know what the price or the price range of this thing is? Is it like five grand or so? Yeah, it's five grand. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it's in the same same price range as the D three S then. Yep. Uh, yeah. D three is fifty fifty two and change. I think it is, which is you know. Right. You know, and so the, the 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 big difference is I think the video capabilities are are better on here. I you know I, I will still make the point that it's not necessarily going to be as good as with a dedicated video camera for certain things. I've already started to hear mention that you know resolving fine detail and there's maybe some wari pattern uh, artifacts every now and then, but overall it's a you know, very strong contender. And I think what we haven't seen yet from either one of these uh, high end manufacturers is a real uh, you know detailed comparison of these ultra-high ISO shots and how they compare and what kind of sacrifices you're making at 102,000. Yeah, I would love to see that. You know, are you just shooting like a solarized image or do you actually have something that you can use? I I, I think when these are actually out in demand, I want to rent both of these and just play with them and see. Because that's a... And I'm very, I'm very curious about why we think that they chose to do a crop sensor for a camera that was more expensive than the 5D. Yeah. I mean, does any Ron? I, Ron I, is the no, perfect I, person to answer this question because I'm sure he knows Ron, the answer. He's the poster child for crop sensors. So, Ron, you got to. <laughs> they were talking to Ron. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not in love with crop sensors. I just, my point is that you're, it's just one of the things that you can trade off to uh when, you, when you're building a camera and the crop sensor gives you the ability to uh you know make a less expensive make a lighter body there's all kinds of things that a crop sensor can but, but the question is, is that in this case though we're, we're talking about a, a five thousand dollar camera we we would assume that this is their flagship this is the biggest camera they've got and they're giving us something that's less than um the total you know the, the, less than what we're getting with the 5d mm-hmm. uh if you consider you know the the size of the sensor to be the most important thing of what you're looking for, but I don't think it is for a lot of people. I think a lot of people don't really care. You know, other than that, slap a, a really wide angle lens on it and get a small depth of field. But I mean, you know, if you've got a, a fast, you know, 1.4 lens, your depth of field is so narrow anyway. I don't think you need to have more. No, it's, so, I, I meant that. I, I, think, meant that. I think it's uh, probably going to be uh, more of a sports camera because obviously, with long lenses, the crop sensor can be a bit of an advantage. I think sports shooters aren't necessarily looking for the highest resolution, but they definitely want quality at high ISO for, for fast shutter speed work. So my guess and, is maybe it's a little more targeted to the uh, photojournalism sports community, perhaps. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, I think it is more of an action camera uh, that you know, the consideration was make sure we get a good, you know, a good frame rate out of it so you can shoot a lot of frames per second and that kind of thing. And I think, you know... If if Canon is true to form, there will probably be an ultra high resolution um, equivalent. That's probably a full frame coming out at some point here as well. 
Yeah. <clears throat> I just got a text message in from a buddy of mine, Gustavo Fernandez. He says he thinks uh, they, meaning Canon, doesn't want to cannibalize the 1DS's uh, full frame for the, you know, the, the yeah. for this product. You know, so I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's a combination of all of them. I think I, I'm not of the school of thought that, that these camera manufacturers, of course, with the note that I have no inside information as to what they're thinking. But I don't think they're building these things with one specific genre of photographer in mind. Because you look at these specs for this thing, you know, they've got the video on there with the external st- stereo mic. So they're going after that video space. Um, ISO 102-400, which means they're going after the Steve, you know, Simons of the world that need to shoot everything with no flash and in whatever circumstance that would c- could possibly be thrown at them. But then there's a, a 1.3 crop sensor for the people that want to shoot sports. You know, maybe you want to, you want more mileage out of your zoom lenses. So, you know, I think things are going all over the place. And I don't unless you're in the war room at Nikon or Canon and you know what they're what they're trying to do. You know, I think it's it's a fool's errand to say they're building this camera specifically for this this genre of photographer. Yeah. But the reality is, you end up with a, um, a selection of different tools. You know that will meet just about any photographic need. So certainly, yeah. um, you know that's the excitement of it all. I mean, there's there's something for everybody here. Everybody with five to eight thousand dollars. Yes. Okay, not that me. ain't everybody, Steve. I'm just saying. Right. <laughs> so also in the news, uh, Adobe has released a public beta of Adobe Photoshop Lightroom version three. So uh, that came out. Unfortunately, you know, for me at least, that came out. Day one of the expo, and the bandwidth in my hotel room was like I don't know, circa 1975 or something. So I couldn't uh, I couldn't download it, um, but uh, I have downloaded it, but I haven't played with it yet. But l- reading through some of the specs our producer put in the in the notes, it's got numerous improvements, um, and and you know massive uh, sort of speed enhancements. Which thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, lots of performance, uh, particularly on import and the interface. The import interface has been rewritten. It's got greater integration with photo sharing sites uh, like Flickr, which I saw, which is really cool. So apparently you can manage your entire Flickr stream directly from this, including deleting and moving things around. So that's going to be a welcome addition to all those Flickr-ers out there. Uh, one thing that Scott Kelby, I know uh, from speaking with him, he was adamant about having or having the ability in Lightroom to be able to export independent slideshows. So for some reason, every other app on the planet could export a slideshow that you could then give to somebody, but Lightroom wouldn't let you do it in up to Lightroom version 2, but now you can. And nice. one, of the features, one of the features that lots of photographers use, uh, myself included, is the post-crop vignette. But one of the problems with the, with the last version was it was kind of obvious. You could kind of, you know, you, you, you don't want to be heavy-handed with, with vignetting unless that's your goal. You know, you want to have some level of control over it and not have it, not have it look like you added a vignette to it in most circumstances. You just wanted to draw attention to the center of the image. Uh, but they improved post-crop vignette. Post-crop meaning the, there's two versions of the, the vignetting tool. There's one that will is essentially a lens correction tool that la- lets you remove uh, the, the vignetting that happens with, with certain lenses around, or the darkness that happens around the edges of your photo with certain lenses. Um, so you can drag a slider to counteract that and remove that. The post-crop vignette is specifically for creative pers- purposes. So now you can you know, crop something down, and with the previous version or with the, with the lens correction vignette, if you drag that slider, it would be applying that vignetting 
to the original X and Y of the image, where with this one, the post crop will apply it to just the cropped area, giving you much more creative control. So uh, lots of stuff like that, lots of under the hood stuff. So we're going to we're going to throw a uh, link in the show notes to download the free beta. So I would suggest downloading it and playing with it and, you know, making your own conclusions. So now, did, so, Canon, did Canon also put this uh, this firmware uh, announcement up uh, at this during the week while yeah. you were there? They, I think it either the day before or the day of, around the same time that came out with the with the new twenty four p twenty five frames per second video. Yep. Do we? What do you think? About, what do you think about that? I'm Alex? excited. Yeah, I know you would be. <laughs> well, now yeah, would you use that though? I mean, because you're you're. Oh, we're absolutely uh, we're absolutely going to use it. I mean, we're we're gonna. Uh, I mean, that would be something that we definitely want to to jump into. Um, so we would definitely update the the twenty to twenty four. The question is, is whether they're going to do the same thing they did with the seventy, which is up, not only does the seventy do thirty, twenty five, and twenty four, but it does twenty nine nine seven and twenty three nine eight. Um, when, instead of a pure 30 or a, or a pure 24, and that makes a big difference when you're syncing back with audio. So all mm-hmm. of our audio is working with what's called a drop frame, and uh, the original 5D doesn't do that, and when you have longer clips, uh, you lose a frame about every 50 seconds. Hey, Alex, it's, can it's I ask you just a, a layman's mm-hmm. question on this? Because there's a lot of talk about you know this 1080 being really important, and I know Nikon came out with 720. But if you're using your DSLR for video that, let's say, you want to just post on the web, I mean, ultimately, are you going to see a, a difference, really? Um, not, and where would not, you see it? I would say not really. Oh, <laughs> so okay. so the, the, um, the 1080p is great. Uh, what we have found is that if uh, we did a lot of tests early on with, with, uh, with MacBreak, and we found that if your monitor is not larger than 60 inches and, and at the same time you're not closer than uh, 10 feet from the monitor – um, you had a very hard time resolving the difference between 720p and 1080p. Um, so why uh, is all this fuss about it then? Because that's the final format. I mean, 1080p is where everyone's going to end up, you know, for quite some time. That's where the whole thing's going to stabilize. It's it's the largest you really need it to be for any any for any reasonable purpose. 1080p it, you know, it's, is it's a, yeah, it's a broadcast. It's the broadcast format, right. right? It's the high end of the broadcast format. And, and and another point to make is just like we see with the megapixels on a camera. You know, there's reason to have extra resolution, even if your output resolution isn't necessarily going to be as high. You know, you right. shoot a still frame, and you want to have the ability to crop in. Uh, well, it's not only like crop, but the thing to remember is that you're over. You know, these these files that are coming out are a bit compressed, and if you take that 1080p and you shrink it down to uh, nine, 960 by 540, which is exactly half, or even 720p, you oftentimes end up with a much better looking image because it's that, that interpolation, that oversampling, uh, actually cleans up some of the artifacts that were uh, occurring otherwise. And so, so th- there's, there are some reasons to have that higher resolution. Um, and the question is, is it, is it really stretching, just stretching the same data over a larger um, surface? If it is, it doesn't make any difference. Like one of the things I noticed with my LX3 um, is that the LX3 shoots... 720p, um, but it really doesn't look good above 640 by 480. So you know, so you know, so or, or 640 by 360. You know, which is half res of that right. of that 720p. When I when I look at it there, looks like a great video. When I make it any bigger than that, it looks compressed. You know, and so it's the same thing we always see where you you, you know, fine, look at the specs, look at the numbers, but ultimately the numbers can really be misleading because there's so many other factors that go into making an image. Right. And a pure resolution number or a pure dynamic range number or, you know, any of these numbers just taken in isolation without sort of understanding what's going on behind the scenes 
uh, can potentially mislead you, and you kind of got to look at what your you know, your real pipeline is going to be like, and look at the actual images. Yeah, it's a it's a whole new set of numbers that photographers need to start paying paying attention to, rather than just megapixels and focal lengths and and speed of lenses and that sort of thing. Well, so now it's all and one of this the video compression stuff as well. And one of the things we're going to be trying to do uh, over the next couple of weeks, we're uh, underwater with production at the moment, but as we go into December, one of the things we're going to start doing is taking a bunch of these cameras. We have a lot of these cameras in house now. And start taking some of the cameras uh, and uh, really testing them against uncompressed. One of the nice things about the uh, the a lot of these cameras, they have an HDMI out. So we can take an uncompressed uh, version out of the camera, take a look at it, and um, and see if it's... Uh, you know, compare it to the compressed version to see what we're, you know, what, what are we really getting? What is compression doing to that final image? Because I will say that the uncompressed version coming out of these cameras is fantastic. The only thing that we've had trouble with, really, with the 5D, we'd be shooting off the off the sensor, but we, when you don't hit record, until you hit record, we can't figure out how to get the little box to disappear on the on the live feed. Someone showed us how to do it, and I, I don't know if they have a different firmware than we do, um, uh, because we couldn't, we, we saw it at, on a shoot uh, last week, and then couldn't find it on our own camera uh, of how to turn that box off so it's available somewhere we just i'm afraid that we're not smart enough to no yeah now alex do you think this is tit for tad i mean do you think uh canon release released this firmware in direct response to nikon i don't think it, i don't think that it, i don't think they released it in response to nikon i think they released it in response to all the users that were complaining that they only had 30p i, I don't think they i don't think they needed any pressure from nikon to get to that point uh you know it, it was clear that canon just completely missed the ball when they uh, understood. That. And the rumor is, and I don't know what the you know, I don't know what the truth is, but the rumor is is that you know what they were working on was a live feed. You know, on the five D, being able to see a live version of what you're going to shoot on the camera. And once they did it, they were just kind of like, well, let's make it available. We can just record this. You know, so it wasn't. You know, it was just kind of like they were working on a feature so you could watch it live, and then realize once once you can watch it live, why not let people record it? So they weren't right. really thinking all the way out there. And thirty was fine because it was just you know it was a great you know that was the TV spec or close to the TV spec, and it seemed fine to the engineers um, because they didn't really realize. And this this happens often with a camera with an engineering company, any engineering company, is they don't really realize how big of a deal it'll be. Um, because the engineers are only looking at, well, this is better than just the the thing we plan to do with it, uh, and and it turns out that it was a, uh, um, you know, it was a much bigger deal than they thought. And Nikon just had enough time to, they got to see what Canon did, they got to see them go into the briar patch, and so their version didn't have to have the same limitations. And and if Canon had really planned it out as a film camera, they would have done a lot of things differently. And I think that we're seeing some of that in the in the seventy. Uh, where they've you know corrected you know some of those issues and it's I, what I'm really glad about is that we're seeing them actually go back and fix that heart that firmware. You know yeah. I mean you know they don't. They, it's, they well, it's interesting. It. To, it's interesting that they did it. I mean it, it's 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 very cool that you know your cameras can actually be updated to include new functionality and that Canon is willing to do it. I think that's you know there, there's got to be a pressure there to uh, for any of these features to sort of try and decide. All right, do we? You know, just wait until we have a new camera so that the feature list on this new camera looks that much better than the old one. Or do we go ahead and update these things? And I, I hope the pressure continues to be that if they can do an update to the existing hardware, they will do it. Uh, yeah. I think that really provides well, and, a lot and, of And value. I'm hoping so, that they're going to do more than just what they're doing there. I, I mean, one of the things that I hope is that they will also uh, update, for instance, allowing us to have manual control over the audio coming in, which is just, you know, just plain silly. Uh, you know, not to have it. Um, you know, that's the that, that's another piece of the of the puzzle that uh, would be great for them to 
you know, add well, these into, guys, into these guys are, are now, I mean, can you imagine the engineering teams inside of these companies now that they're, they've spent years, decades, decades, uh, building features specifically for the still photography space. Now they have a whole new set of masters that they need to serve these video people that are making demands like you, Alex, say, I need this. I need control over my audio. I need, you know, all these different things that the other people don't really care about. You know, the, uh, the, the hardcore, you know, this video stuff is just an afterthought, folks. So they, they've got well, and, these two distinct masters. And I was told, I, I, you know, I was told that the, 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 up until recently that the Canon teams, the video team and the still team, they did not interact at all. You know, they were completely in their own separate worlds. Um, and, and it was actually this debacle uh, that had them figure out, well, we should probably have these guys talking to each other. So they're, they're kind of working yeah. on, you know, you've got the video camera guys doing still photos and you've got the still camera guys doing video. You got to have them start trading notes, you know, and because and Canon has been on the forefront of 24P on many of their smaller cameras. And so they, you know, it's, 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 it was ironic that they would, that they would All miss right. that. And just, just, a, just a quick message to the TWIP listeners that are writing emails to me right now to tell me that we talk about video too much. <laughs> you don't need to send that. <laughs> just, just don't send it, okay? We know we talk about it, but it's relevant right now, so we're talking about it. So There you uh, go. Thank, thank you, but you can just delete that. And that's <laughs> <it>. <laughs> So we got Alex. Alex, you want to take us through who our uh, who the the, uh, the sponsor is? Sure. So of course we want to get, again thank uh, Squarespace.com. Uh, you know Squarespace.com is a way to build, host, and manage your website. It's an easy to use UI for creating and managing a website or a blog. You can optimize it. It doesn't matter whether you're a beginner or whether you're a CSS you know expert. All of those things you can you can customize it as much as you need, but you can also have something that's turnkey. Um, there's hundreds of design templates to choose from, um, and then you can customize those. So you can get something that's close to what you want, and then you can just keep on building from it uh, from there. Uh, if you want to get a free trial, you can go up to squarespace.com slash twip. You don't need a credit card, so you're not going to have to uh, you know, put something in. You don't have to commit to anything. Just go to squarespace.com squarespace.com slash twip and uh, try it out build a website uh, you can get your own URL and have it be your own URL once you've bought it which uh, you can get 10% off if you use the offer code TWIP and you know I just can't say enough about Squarespace we love Squarespace um, you know we're building pretty much all of the front end front facing versions of all of our sites uh, you know in Squarespace and so it's, it's really uh, I, I just I just can't be bothered with uh, all the complexities of doing it otherwise. <laughs> so anyway. You'd rather be bothered with the complexities of video than worry about I want to worry about the content. I don't want to worry about the technology. I don't, I don't really like dealing with the web in general, I have to admit. Um, and so, uh, I mean, I don't like dealing with the infrastructure of it. Uh, I'd rather have somebody else do that. And I kind of felt like I didn't want to get into dealing with it. I, I feel like we've been up until now writing PostScript to get our documents out. Oh yeah, totally. You know, and I kind of just want PageMaker, you know, or InDesign or whatever they want to call it now. Um, you know, I don't want. I just want something that lets me design what I'm going to do and then and then put it out. And and that's you want, you want real WYSIWYG and you want it as a as a, uh, a software as a service kind of implementation, yeah. right? Yeah. Yep. So that's I hear it. You. I'm with I'm with you. Squarespace.com/slash/twip. All right, Steve Simon, you want to uh, tell us about this next piece of news: the digital camera inventor. Sure, sure. Um, Steve Sasson, who um, or Sasson, is a gentleman who is credited for um, inventing the first digital camera uh, when he was a 25-year-old uh, new employee at Kodak. And uh, it is a little bit ironic. Actually, um, the whole digital camera photography thing has been in the news a lot lately uh, with 
with Mr. Sasson being uh, given an honorary degree, or no, sorry, an honorary doctorate at um, the Rochester University of Rochester, uh, which of course is the home of uh, Kodak. And uh, the Nobel Prize for Physics uh, was shared with a couple of gentlemen who also were instrumental in creating um, some of the uh, CCDs that we now use or uh, versions of which we now use. Kind of ironic in a way that uh, Steve Sasson, who worked at Kodak, you know, arguably um, the one company that probably may or may not have lost the most in this sort of digital world. I know they're making amazing sensors, but... I don't think Kodak is anywhere near uh, the size that it, it once was um, in, in the film days. And, you know, they had it. They were the first to, to have this thing. And I guess maybe they would do things differently if they could look back uh, and, and do, things, uh, do things differently. Well, isn't, isn't, yeah. that the, isn't that the, the, uh, the problem when you, once again, when you're protecting an upline? So you get a digital camera, but I'm sure that the early conversations are, you know, we don't want this to take over because this will chew into our film business. I'm sure. I'm sure. And, and, you know, there are visionaries out there that uh, kind of get a, have a clearer sense of the future. Um, I'm sure they would do things maybe a lot differently than they did. And this first incarnation that Steve Sasson uh, created uh, looked more like, uh, well, it, it wasn't very pretty, um, but it, it worked. And, and from there, uh, we now have uh, what we have, which is this digital revolution. But um, yeah, it's it's in some ways it's a, a little bit sad because Kodak was such a and uh, is such an icon uh, for photography, and they're still there. They're still making these amazing sensors, but um, obviously it's a very different landscape, and film is getting harder and harder to to find. Yeah, it looks like I think I think Adobe is now the Kodak. You know, today, so Kodak, Adobe sort of owns the digital imaging space. When you think of moving pixels around you're invariably going to mention an adobe product and not so much kodak anymore so i think the the throne that uh, that kodak once held and i think they've passed that torch on quite a while ago to uh, to the folks over at adobe well hopefully right, it's more matter that, that intermediate step just kind of disappeared right you know there, there used to be the camera manufacturer and the film manufacturer in the in the middle and it just doesn't exist right it's now the camera yep. manufacturer is the image capturer uh, and then there's the yeah. post-process part of it. And then there's the card people like uh, Lexar and SanDisk uh, that make, uh, you know, the film of today, I guess, the capture devices. But, uh, you know, those things are so solid and they last such a long time. You know, you, you don't need the... Well, and, and they don't affect the image quality, right? So they're no, not yeah. nearly the critical chain in the, in the process. That's true. That's, That's true. Yeah. You're not, you're not going to buy a sort of Velvia... Lexar card to get that tone. <laughs> you want the good skin tone, so you're going to buy Lexar. You want Lexar because it's bulletproof or sand. It's because it's bulletproof and it's not going to lose your images. Yeah. Um, also in the news, Pocket Wizard has wrapped up uh, their Canon RF noise reduction problem. Finally, Pocket Wizard, meaning uh, the little devices that you slap on your strobe or on your camera to remotely trigger either one of those. Uh, they had an issue with their latest version, their previous version uh, was uh, bulletproof and everyone loved it. And they came out with a new version that would actually transmit TTL information through RF, allowing you much more flexibility aside from just triggering the flash. So it went from binary on and off to actually sending exposure information and allowing your flashes to communicate intelligently back to your camera. But the problem was they had an RF noise problem, which was 
with limiting range and reliability of when the thing would trigger and in some cases the reliability of the data that was being transferred. So looks like they uh, uh, may have wrapped that up. So we'll, we'll put some links in the show notes to uh, the article that talks about that and also to Pocket Wizard to take a look at that device. I really want one of those, actually. Um, have you, Steve, I know you don't do a lot of flash photography, but would you, do you use those at all or have you used Pocket Wizards? Um, well, when I get the D3S, I'll probably just get rid of my SB900 and uh, you know, use the high ISO. I haven't used the Pocket Wizards. I've used um, a, comp- a competitive product, Radio Poppers, which allow TTL um, with the Nikon Speedlight system. And those mm. have, have proven to work really, really well. I know Pocket Wizard is scheduled to come up with a Nikon version of their product. It's just not available yet. So in the meantime, I've been using Radio Poppers, and, and they've been uh, doing the job. Excellent. Cool. Also in the news, Epson has added tethering and remote shutter release to their P6000 and P7000 photo viewers. Those are those little sort of pocket-sized boxes that have lots of memory in them and LCD displays on them. So you can, while you're in the field shooting, stick your compact flash or SD cards into them, download your images onto its internal storage, and review them, organize them, keyword, do whatever you want while it's uh, on that little device, so they've added they're adding fe- adding features to them because they're essentially little computers. So now they're allowing you to um, um, screen preview, do the storage and all that stuff, but also use it as a remote trigger device and um, and be tethered. So I'm I'm interested in seeing that. I don't know that right. I would get one because um, you know there's there's the on one thing that's out there now for the iPhone. I don't I don't see it. I don't see these dedicated uh, devices just having any having much traction. I mean, you can get little tiny netbooks that can do the same sort of thing with the right software. You have your iPhone that can do tethering stuff like you were just mentioning the on one yep. stuff. I, I don't. It's really a get droid this. though. I mean, it's it's it's. I think it's in defense of them. I think it's a bulletproof little unit that, say, you're out shooting a wedding, you can download your stuff into it, so you immediately have a backup right there without going. I, of course, you could do it with a netbook, but I'm not going to put a netbook in my camera bag. I could just pull this thing out, slap a card into it, and let it be downloading while I continue shooting. And then when I'm having dinner or whatever afterwards, I can just pull that thing out and review my images. So there's, I think there's something to be said for purpose-built units. And then the, yeah. the argument, I think, against, say, an iPhone-type solution, other than the tethering piece of it, is you're not going to be storing these images on your iPhone. You know, this, this thing is designed to suck all your images in there and keep them in a safe place, or at least another place, until you get to your main system at home. So... Yeah, that's, that's the big value, I think, Fred, and that is as a, a storage device when, you know, like Alex, who's traveling in Africa or if I'm shooting in Africa and you can't get to your computer, if you have no electricity, these things will run on batteries and allow you to store, empty your cards, continue to shoot, and then when you get back to your um, computer and an electrical outlet, then you can download everything. But as far as tethering in the field, I, I don't, I don't like Ron, I don't really see that as being something yeah. really practical because if you're going to tether you might as well you know use your laptop anyway i don't know having a small um screen although they are beautiful screens but it's not not as not all that practical yeah i would agree with that all right uh let's let's jump into the current poll so we've been getting lots of feedback both positive and uh negative frankly about the insertion of the interviews in the show uh and not so much the length of them but just the just should we put them in the show should they be at the end of the show should they be a separate feed completely 
So we want we want your feedback. So go to twiplog.com and the poll that we've posted is Twip interviews. Do you prefer them to be in show or as a separate audio feed? And the the potential questions or the the uh, answers are: I would like them to be where they are now, in the middle of an existing show, i.e., don't change a thing, or I would like to have a separate main show and interview as two separate downloads or two separate feeds. So. Would love to know what you guys think, um, because this is, of course, podcast, and we are flexible and can uh, can change things if it makes sense. So uh, definitely head over there and tell us what you think. Who do we All have? Right. Uh, for, speaking of interviews, yeah. Speaking of interviews, um, today's guest is a gentleman by the name of Jeff Shiwi. You guys may have heard of him, but he uh, he's an award winning advertising photographer in Chicago for the last twenty five years. And his photo- photographic specialty has been problem-solving, as he puts it. And with the control that digital photography now provides, he's able to solve even more problems. So he's able to you know, basically control every pixel on the screen to execute whatever vision he's working towards. But he's not just a user of the software. He also helps to build it. He's a feature consultant on an alpha and beta tester of Adobe Photoshop and Lightroom. And uh, you know, if you launch Photoshop, you'll see his name in the credits when you launch it. So it's he's uh, he's one of those folks that's in the the inner inner circle that uh, consults with the company on what they should be doing and what uh, he thinks people want to see. And it just for his street cred, he was he's also held the title of president of the Advertising Photographers of America or the APA. So give this interview a listen. This is Mr. Jeff Shiwi. Hey Jeff, how you doing, Frederick? Good to see you. What, how do you describe yourself to people when people say, you know, okay, what, what is it that you do and how are you helping Adobe and et cetera, et cetera? Well, I'm, I'm basically sleep deprived, have been for about two decades. Um, I end up staying busy, doing stuff. Uh, in terms of uh, in the industry, in the 80s, when I first got into commercial advertising photography, I was very involved in industry associations. Uh, I was a charter member of uh, APA, Advertising Photographers of America. And uh, uh, in the 90s, when I got out of uh, uh, commercial film, I used to also shoot film, and got into digital imaging, uh, I kind of turned more towards, uh, well, dealing um, kind of with Adobe in making changes to uh, the technology uh, for the benefit of photographers and, uh, and myself. Um, but so then kind of got involved in doing, um, okay. Then got kind of involved doing software development with Pixel Genius with, you know, Bruce Fraser and Martin Evening and Andrew Rodney and Seth Resnick and now Mac Holbert. Um, so, you know, I, I do a lot of different things and, uh, I have a short attention span. I get I get bored easy, so I always like something new to do. Who? What is Pixel Genius? Pixel Genius is a collaboration of industry leaders that basically decided we wanted to fund the ability to buy wine, get together, and have fun by selling software. So we developed a product called PhotoKit, which was the original one. Um, I talked Bruce into trying to take his sharpening concepts and turn it into a product called PhotoKit Sharpener. And then Martin Evening did PhotoKit Color, uh, color creative color effects. So those are the three products. Um, Bruce had a pretty substantial impact. He did a real-world image sharpening book for CS2 
that um, had a pretty strong impact on uh, Thomas Noel. Uh, Thomas wanted Bruce to consult on the improvement of sharpening in camera raw and then what would ultimately also go into Lightroom. Mm -hmm. And then thought that uh, it would be useful for Adobe to work with Pixel Genius to incorporate the output sharpening uh, uh, technologies of our product uh, directly into Lightroom. So we did that. Yeah. And that's been actually very gratifying. Bruce, even though he passed away, he knew that that was all going to happen. and. And he was very gratified because he thought Photocut Sharpener was probably, he thought, one of the biggest things that he did in the industry, yeah, which I agree. Awesome. And, it, and it shows up in Lightroom. The sharpening stuff shows up in Lightroom when you're printing and, or exporting. Export. Mm -hmm. So if you're exporting for screen, yep. you sharpen specifically for the screen. Yeah, or for print. Or for print. And then it also shows up in Camera Raw. Uh, okay. Currently, its implementation is in the workflow settings in Camera Raw, so when you click to change the color space and the size, you can also add sharpening. I don't really recommend people use it there yet. Yeah. Uh, the usability is not quite there. Uh, the next version of Camera Raw, I think, will be better, but it's the same uh, sharpening technology in Camera Raw and Lightroom. Now, what would you say to people that are, you know, a lot of people use Lightroom, obviously, and... Um, but a lot of people just scratch the surface in terms of the features in it. And a lot of people say, oh, sharpening, I don't know what to do there. I don't know what's too much and what's not enough. What's the rule of thumb about sharpening and when to apply it and how much is too much? Well, since uh, I, I fulfilled Bruce's contract with Adobe for the consulting on the sharpening, and so I, I did have some direct involvement, as you know, um, with a little uh, munchkin called Mark Hamburg, uh, an engineer that... Um, he allows you to call him a munchkin? <laughs> what's he going to do? I'm bigger than he is. Um, the uh, And, of course, people listening to this won't see how much I'm smiling <laughs> when I said munchkin. Um, but, uh, no, the fact is that um, we went from Camera Raw's single sharpening slider that was crude and primitive to four sliders and arguably six because the luminance and noise, color noise reduction are equally important for proper setting to maximize the amount of detail that you can get out of your image. But uh, the bottom line is to evaluate the image at one-to-one -one in Lightroom or Camera Raw and to get it to look good. Regain the apparent loss of sharpness that the whole digitizing process naturally occurs when you take continuous light and break it up into grids of pixels it's going to soften and so you need to sharpen that even with the best cameras and optics yeah. so you got to bring that back but you don't want to sharpen for effect and fact of the matter is if you know the best way to get a really sharp image in Lightroom and camera raw is use a tripod on the camera yeah get it right Be first yeah because if you've got uh camera shake or subject motion, there's really very little you can do about that uh, after the fact. So camera on Lightroom, it's for capture sharpening, part of the Bruce's sharpening workflow of capture, creative, and output sharpening. Mm -hmm. And then in uh, Lightroom, we have the output sharpening. The thing that we don't have that we still need to rely upon uh, Photoshop for is, is creative sharpening or sharpening for effect. And there you can do a lot of stuff, and, and it's kind of somewhat counterintuitive, but most people don't think about it this way. But you can make 
some things appear sharper by making everything else look softer. Mm -hmm. So adding a, uh, uh, a soft box blur or even a, a lens blur and then keeping that off of the critical areas, it'll make those appear sharper. And then you can go back in and sharpen those individually as well. So the creative sharpening by nature kind of, it's implied that it's kind of a localized adjustment. Yeah. And currently the uh, current uh, local adjustments in Lightroom and Camera Raw for sharpness kind of suck. Uh, negative clarity is great. Positive clarity, negative clarity, mm -hmm. but positive. Yes, uh, but positive and negative sharpness. I kind of think of it as a placeholder for uh, technology that will come. Yeah. So probably the next version. So where do you fall on it? And I, I, the listeners of this week in photography already know where I fall on this. But where do you fall on digital manipulation? Because there's there's extremists on either side of. You should never touch any pixel in an image. And then there's the people on the far other side that say, you know, you should be able to massage pixels to get them where you want. I always say pixels are made to be punished. So where do you fall in that spectrum? Um, I consider myself a fine art photographer, not a photojournalist, not uh, a documentarian. So when I take a picture of an environment or a location, it's not being done for the purposes of documenting the exact condition. Uh, you know, I have a good friend and uh, colleague, Steve Johnson, that is very strict in his, if he does a landscape shot and there's a beer can in the shot, there'll be a beer can in the print. Yeah. I have no, although <laughs> I, I got him, I asked him, I said, well, if you see it when you shoot it, why don't you go and pick it up? Because yeah. that's not retouching. Right. But he says that's manipulating the scene. It's like, yeah, but you're also picking up the trash, Steve. <laughs> that's a good thing, isn't it? Yeah. So, but I, th I think it all boils down to the uh, ethics and the purposes for which the images will be used. If you're a photojournalist and, you know, you're doing some downing and birding to make the image uh, appear... Uh, uh, you know, easier to see in in reproduction. That's entirely legitimate. Yeah. But if you're copying and pasting uh, people in, uh, or changing people's expressions, yeah, or otherwise um, changing the context of the image, then that's uh, dishonest. Yeah. Uh, I get I got a big kick out of Iran when they had their missile tests and one of them failed. They retouched another missile in, and of course they got caught doing that. Yep. And, you know, um, that kind of stuff, it's, it's kind of, you know, that's heavy-handed. Uh, but, you know, for example, the magazines in France, uh, France may actually institute a law that, that requires that fashion magazines not retouch models' faces. Yeah, uh -oh. <laughs> Yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm thinking... I would I, vote against that one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well... I always like to to uh, uh, laugh when uh, I, this is uh, intended to be funny. But uh, do you know why uh, Photoshop is so successful? Why? Because reality sucks. Yeah, I agree. And you know, if you can't uh, alter or improve or otherwise retouch reality, uh, then you know the reality sucks. Yeah. Uh, you know, but if you're doing advertising work, I don't think anybody uh, uh, expects things to be photographed in their actual state. They're being photographed in their kind of optimal state. And, you know, 
if that takes a prototype or if that takes retouching, so what? Yeah. So, Jeff, you're, you're plugged into digital technology, and, you know, you know where things are going, you know where they've been. <laughs> um, as much as anybody possibly can. What? How do you stay plugged into all this stuff? You know, I know you're you're ingrained with the Adobe team, and you know the you know digital imaging technologies and, and the direction that stuff's going in. But just overall, you know, there's all kinds of there's printer technologies, there's digital camera technologies, there's the convergence of video and still, and all this stuff is just coming a mile a minute. How do you manage it? Well, I just like to hang out with smart people, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and um, you know the the fact of the matter is that. Uh, uh, it, it, there is a lot to absorb. I mean, you know, that's one of the reasons I don't shoot commercially is that, that there's just too much stuff to read and think about. Uh, <laughs> uh, and it's fun. But no, I mean, working with Adobe, working with Epson, working with Phase One, I used to work with Canon, mm-hmm. uh, all in intent to influence the direction of the industry, number one, but also to improve the tools that I'm using. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, but I told you in the beginning, you know, I'm sleep deprived. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, and, and part of that sleep deprivation comes from being an author. You've got three oh, yeah. books out there in the world right yeah, now. Three right? half books. Three half books. Yes, I'm a professional co-author. <laughs> and what, what's the latest book that's out right now? Well, the one that just came out is Real World Image Sharpening, which was the, the second book that I updated for Bruce. Uh, I also did Real World Camera Raw. Um, for CS3 and then CS4. And then uh, uh, Peach Pit talked me into updating the sharpening book, and I knew that was going to be difficult. But uh, I was the natural choice because I had worked with Bruce on PhotoKit Sharpener and uh, worked with him when he was consulting on uh, Camera Raw and then worked with Adobe to get the output sharpener in. Uh, and then the previous book, the, the second book that I did in the last year was... Uh, uh, a book, Photoshop for Photographers, with Martin Evening, mm-hmm. and uh, that was done. Uh, it's a Photoshop for Photographers Ultimate Workshop. So he's doing his main Photoshop for Photographers book. Adobe has this problem of of only adding to an application, not taking anything out. So Martin had to figure out a way of not letting the book grow past, you know, eight hundred pages. Oh, yeah. So he basically decided to take all the technique based. Uh, content of the book and break it out into a separate book. So everything about Photoshop is still in the Photoshop for photographers, but the actual techniques for using a lot of the tools are in the the new book, Ultimate Workshop. That's cool. And then the 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 other two books previous to that, what were those about? Well, the Camera Raw CS4 and then Camera Raw CS3. Yeah, which are are they the best-selling Photoshop books? Or they've got they've got to be have some sort of title like that because they've been around and everybody has them on their shelf. Well, I don't know. Uh, you know, if uh, any of your readers who haven't uh, uh, bought one, uh, buy buy two. You know, give one to your friend. Um, much better to buy two than actually. Uh, just buy one, read it, and pass it on. Yeah, you so you can do that, too. It's like comic books. You, know, yeah. you buy two comic books, you yeah. put one in the sleeve, and yeah. you read one. So, no, I mean, the bottom line is I, I have no idea within the context of the range of Photoshop books. I, I really don't care. I mean, yeah. I'm not doing the book for money. I was doing it for love, uh, mm-hmm. doing the Camera Raw book for Bruce, and also uh, as an advocate for Camera Raw itself, and and Thomas Knoll and all the, you know, Eric Chan and yeah. Zalman Stern and all the the Camera Raw team. Yeah. So, um, 
you know, that's gratification enough. And yeah, you know, I earned some money on it, but uh, Bruce also, uh, his estate gets a, a, a portion of the proceeds. Very so, good. very good. So you're, you are, you know, we, I just stepped out of one of your classes. We're here at Photoshop World, and you're giving tips on Lightroom and printing and, uh-huh. and sharpening and that sort of thing. Um, if you could leave the audience with, you know, one or two tips on Lightroom. You know, these are, you know, I met this, say this is a folk, a, a guy that's, or a girl that's just starting in Lightroom and you're a little overwhelmed with both the simplicity of the application and, you know, how deep it goes in some of the areas. What would you say, where should they start to get their feet wet? In there? Well, I think uh, the big thing is to learn how to use presets and templates. Mm-hmm. They're there uh, to simplify your life and reduce the chance for error, and also adds a degree of consistency. One of the biggest problems that's uh, a problem in Photoshop is is having the ability to do the same thing multiple times over a period of time. Uh, you know, in Lightroom, you want to be able to have you know like consistent print output, consistent margins on the prints, for example. Uh, you know, consistent size. So templates are a way of of deploying that. And then uh, in terms of printing, you know, I'm I'm uh, an Epson user, but whether you got Canon or HP, uh, really good profiles. Now, Epson uh, uh, does its users a good service. I think they've uh, become the manufacturer that produces the best quote canned profiles. Um, it's because of their technology. They have such a low unit-to-unit variation on their pro printers that a single profile is very representational for all the printers uh, of that uh, type. Yeah. So you can get away with you know making a single profile for like the 3880 that is just shipping for luster paper, for example. Yeah. Um, if you're using third-party papers, obviously you're going to have to get custom or create... Uh, yeah, your own profiles. Which do you suggest? Should, should if should a photographer invest in the gear and, and do their own profiling, or should they just use canned profiles? Well, here's the thing. I mean, th- this would be another tip. Um, spend some time exploring uh, your paper options when you're making prints, and then settle on uh, a, a small range, and then focus and concentrate on getting good at getting your images on that paper. Don't be constantly bouncing around using different paper all the time. Mm-hmm. So if in the beginning you may not be able to you know, afford to uh, or need to make profiles for a bunch of different papers, maybe you only need uh, the final kind of two or three papers you're going to use on a consistent basis, and then you can actually have uh, third-party people make you a custom profile. Yeah. Uh, it's not terribly expensive these days. Buying the hardware and the software is expensive, uh, and it is work. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> it, it's nice to actually uh, uh, have a life outside of Lightroom and camera on Photoshop. And yeah. as soon as I get one, I'll let you know what it's like. <laughs> but um, the fact is that uh, if you can cut down uh, the full extent of your responsibilities, you know, and, and farm that out, uh, do so. But I also think it's important to limit the scope of all the media that you're playing with. Play with it, see what you like, and see what works best for your type of uh, image. And pick it and stick with it. Yeah. Yeah. So, Jeff, where, where can people find out more about you and the stuff that you're working on and your books and all that good stuff? Well, Photoshop News, uh, which 
apparently hasn't been updated since the announcement that Mark Hamburg is coming back from. Uh, I spoke with Mark yesterday. Blew yeah, me away. Yeah. yeah. And um, uh, so Photoshop news, uh, my website, chiwiphoto.com, uh, Pixel Genius, pixelgenius.com. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just out from underneath uh, the third book uh, in, in less than a year. And um, uh, I've been to Antarctica, uh, England, and now southern Utah shooting. I, I'm, I'm going to be loose for a while, so I'm, I'm probably going to update my website and update uh, uh, Photoshop News finally. Very good. Very good. Jeff, thanks a lot for uh, taking the time to speak with me. I know you were uh, hot on the heels of just doing a session and probably beat. But oh, no, I'm wired, actually. <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> You're wired, ready, ready to go rest, though, I'm yeah. sure. All yeah. right. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Thanks, Frederick. Yeah. All right, that was Jeff Shiwi, the award-winning advertising photographer uh, from Chicago. Um, if you want to learn more about Jeff, definitely head over to twiplog.com and click on the link over to his bio and his work in the, uh, in the show notes over there. Now let's jump into the listener questions. And the first question is assigned to Mr. Ron Brinkman. Take it away, Ron. All right, well, this one comes in from a listener named Roswag Jim. He says, I'd like to purchase a longer lens for sports photography and candid portraits, but I have about a $700 budget. I've been looking at the Canon 70-200 F4L and at the Canon 70-300 IS. Can you offer any advice for choosing between the IS and the L lens? Well, you, you know, you mentioned you're talking about uh, sports photography, and, and I think it's important to understand that you know, any, anything you're looking at motion blur in an image, which you're trying to avoid, you, you, you can come from one of two places, right? It can come from the camera moving relative to the subject or the subject moving relative to the camera. And the, the IS, the image stabilization stuff, is only good for fixing or trying to mitigate the camera being unstable or moving relative to the subject. So if you're shooting sports photography, your real issue is typically going to be what you're photographing on the other end of the, of the camera is what's moving, and you want to be able to freeze that as much as possible. So I don't think the IS is going to buy you much there, uh, whereas having a faster lens will. The, uh, the Canon 70-200 F4, um, you know, it's not a super fast lens, but I'm pretty sure that 70-300 is something like a 3.5 to 5.6, so it's a variable aperture range, which means if you're shooting at the longest length of it, uh, you're probably shooting at 5.6 instead. So that right there gets you probably a little bit of a benefit. And then it's just getting an L lens versus uh, the, the 7300 IS. Last time I looked at the 7300 IS, it's a good lens, but it's not ultra, ultra sharp, whereas the 70 to 200 L is considered one of the best lenses that Canon makes. So I would, you know, anytime you're looking at lenses, it's always a good idea to go into a store and try a couple of them out and look at them side by side and or just, you know, rent them for a day or two and compare yourself. But I'm not sure that the IS is going to help you that much in this situation like this. Cool. All right, the next question is assigned to Alex. It's from a listener that goes by the name of Leston Lloyd. Alex? Thank you. So Leston said, I'm setting up a training facility for teenagers to learn about CS4 and other such software uh, to be able to enhance their computing skills before they go to college. A new section of our free courses will be digital photography. And uh, and we need to kit ourselves up to be ready for it. Our, we have a budget of about uh, 7,000 pounds. I don't know what that is now. It's probably like 12,000, 10,000, 10, $12,000. Uh, and uh, need to get equipment uh, for everything, for the different setups, band, portraits, live music, extreme sports, and studio setup. The only thing we have on our list is the Canon 5D Mark II. 
any recommendations for glass, flash, tripod, uh, lighting, extras uh, would be great. So I, I got this question, and um, you know, uh, it was uh, served up to me. I, I think this, I think everyone, all of us, should probably jump in because I have to admit, you know, we are such an integrated studio. You know, a lot of our needs uh, are a little bit distinct from pure photography. Um, you know, um, all of the lighting we get, and maybe that's what the, maybe that's uh, part of the question is uh, whether you want to. Uh, have video as an option. If you're if you're looking at video as an option, then you're going to look at continuous lights instead of strobes, uh, you know, to to replace it. And, and I I think that more and more photographers are starting to do that, um, knowing that that's kind of coming for them. And it's also you know so that's you know we're just used to having the lights on all the time. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, and uh, and so that's you know that's one thing to consider um, as far as tripods go. You know, as I said, we're kind of very focused on. Fluid heads. I mean, we have a lot of them in Frodo. I know that I don't know what you guys are using for tripods, but those are the ones that we use um, the most. And I, I mean, it's it's like half of their stock <laughs> of them. So, so, so I'm not. It's hard for me to pick which one uh, would be perfect. Um, you know, heads are the thing that you really. That, you know, the sticks. You know, there's graphite or steel, and it just depends on how light you want them. If you're going to carry them around a lot, the graphite make a difference. They're a lot more expensive. The real thing that's going to make a difference, of course, is the head. So if you want a fluid head, uh, there's that. If you want a ball, I mean, for a lot of the still photography stuff that we do, we use a lot of ball heads uh, because we can kind of move them around um, and kind of get them to where we want to get them quickly, especially because we're shooting QuickTime VRs uh, or or, uh, HDRs. Now, we want to be able to level them very quickly, and so the ball heads tend to be um, what we like to do there. Uh, also, and this will get a little bit to later in the show, but uh, I would also consider if you're teaching students photography and you want to get the most bang out of your buck, I'm not, uh, you know, as an owner of a Canon 5D, uh, I would strongly consider thinking about the, the 7D as well. Um, you can get almost two of those for the price of one 5D. Uh, yeah, body. I, I, I'm, I... Go ahead. Oh, we lost him. He had a great point. And he, he was so excited. There he is. There's Ron. Wait, there hold on. <laughs> My point being, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought the same thing when you when you, know, you read this is that a 5D uh, may be overkill for what you're trying to do. Not, I mean, not necessarily overkill, but you know, with a limited budget, uh, I I also would think about maybe getting a 7D instead. Especially if it's going to be the only camera you have. If it's, yeah, if it's the only camera you have, you want to. You know, you, yeah, you want to get you know a couple more lenses instead. You know, give a wide range of lenses. I think that's going to be a better learning experience if you if you can provide a, a range of lenses and uh, and you know the studio equipment is not going to be cheap either setting that up. So I think and and or even potentially getting you know like a seventy and even a smaller camera so that you can have more than one person shooting at a time. Right, and and the, you know as far as lenses go, you know I for me my lens the lens package we're kind of putting together for a lot of these cameras is is a fast fifty. A um, twenty-four to seventy, a seventy to two hundred, and those are the ones that we're using. I mean, that's that's kind of the that's what we're kind of building our packs around. Uh, and we're not. We had to. Um, we uh, decided that we were going to not quite go all the way to the Canon. Uh, you know, um, you know, the full boat, uh, and we're getting uh, Sigma two point eights. You know, mm-hmm. fixed. Uh, okay. so, so which, so we just, we have them, they should arrive today actually. Um, yeah. so the 70, the 24 to 70 to 7,200, which, which kind of covers us with the 50, the 50 is great for, uh, the portrait and close up and people and the other ones, you know, cover the other areas. You know, we have a couple of the fish eyes because we do the HDR stuff, but that's not that's kind of specialty photography, as far as I'm concerned. Um, no, Alex, were, were the sigmas cheaper? And if so, how much cheaper? They're a lot cheaper. They're half. 
half oh, wow. the price of the Canons. Now, what you're okay. giving up is that there's not, you know, that doesn't have the IS built in, but it is a 2.8 fixed, and it's, uh, yeah. and they were, you know, in the range of seven hundred, eight hundred dollars for each one. So, um, and we just couldn't couldn't justify uh, we uh, dylan who works in the office has used a lot of the sigmas and he said he said we just really couldn't you know they, they look fine you know he said you mm-hmm. know they were like you know they look great he, he was very happy with them and so and we just you know when we're looking at how many lenses we have to buy um we had to make a you know we had to start cutting some corners uh, we have a tendency to uh uh want to buy the best of everything as we buy it so that we never have to go back we never have to think about it but now we have you know we have a lot of cameras and so if we we're kind of in the situation if we really don't like them or we don't think that they're as good as the L series, um, eventually we'll just get the L series. You know, we just don't, uh, you know, we now have four high end SLRs. And so, so we, you know, we're going to need more than what we have right now. Um, the only other one that we're thinking of getting is an 85, um, you know, for the 5d, you know, when we're doing interviews or portraits, um, you got to get that if you're using the seventies and if you're popping a, um, a 50 onto that, but the, uh, but we're thinking of getting the 85 and that's the one we're looking to get into 1.2. And in the same way, like with the 50 millimeter, we did not buy the 1.2, um, partially cause some of the data we looked at looked like it wasn't that much sharper than the 1.4 and it was, you know, four or five times more expensive. And yeah. so we were quite happy. And the other thing is on a 5d, I shoot at one eight to two, two almost all the time. Um, because, uh, uh, it's just too, the depth of field is too short, um, at, at 1.4. Mm-hmm. So all right. Anyway. All right, let's move on. The next question is assigned to Steve Simon. It's about Getty Images. Steve, you want to take that? Okay, sure. It's a short question. I just want to say that I was kind of disappointed, Fred, that you uh, passed over the uh, the dude that had the D3X uh, tattooed into his arm. Uh, that I was did, on purpose. <laughs> I know. I mean, that was a giant tattoo, but the one thing I wanted to point out when I looked at that is, did you notice he had it tattooed, and you can see the LCD screen on his arm, and We'll we'll link to it in the show notes. But he had it on program mode. Is that would <laughs> that would if you're that you serious? If you're that your serious, arm? I mean, come on now. <laughs> that's a, that's a mistake. You know, that's like putting your girlfriend's arm well, on your name so and misspelling bad. it. <laughs> you know, that tattoo is not going to come off, and I would be very uh, careful about my exposure if I'm going to tattoo it into my arm. But let me get to my question. And oh, the question there it is. is. Alex has it on the screen now. Look at oh, that. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Yeah, wow. you guys. He's when good you until closely, they change the form factor. When the form factor changes, then he's screwed. <laughs> <laughs> but that, but that, but this one, this one existed in a special time in his life. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. And it, Before it he will learned probably how to shoot age manual. well. And uh, but you know, program special, mode special and in looked, quotes, right, Alex? <laughs> it's special. When I looked time. at the f-stop, it, it looked like he was using one of the older lenses because it didn't seem to register. It looked like f zero zero to me. So, you know, he's got a sort of, uh, maybe with a firmware upgrade on that tattoo, things will be good. But, uh, so right. let me get you, to my you've question. You've avoided your is, question long enough, Steve. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Getting images announced this. this week. It is closing and firing its staff and stringer photographers. How will this affect freelance photographers shooting stock photography? Uh, first, uh, sorry to hear that, obviously, for the, the people that are affected. Um, I think, and maybe it's obvious to you guys, too, I mean, the fact that they're they're um, you know getting rid of their staff people and their stringers uh, means that there might be more opportunity for uh, freelance photographers. Obviously, if they're still wanting to address the market that these staff and stringers were um, were shooting for, so um, I think you know it's kind of sad. It's a reflection of uh, the economic times and the difficulty professional photographers are facing. Um, amateur photographers are thriving. 
but pros are are having some hard times and uh it might just require it might just open up some some opportunities uh for freelancers hopefully silver lining there you go all right so let's move right into the picks of the week and uh let's jump in with mr steve simon since you were just talking about your uh about the getty stuff yeah, I'll be quick. Uh, the D3S, uh, at the show, I, I got to see a demo that uh, Mike Corrado of Nikon put on, and he passed around an image he took at the Bronx Zoo of this gorilla, I think it was, at 64 or 12,000 ISO, and it was a print. It was an actual print, and it was remarkable, and it, it kind of ushers in a new era in photography, as far as I can tell, and if even if you can't see it, you'll be able to record it, and you'll be, be able to record it with amazing clarity and and very little noise and i'm assuming you know things will be similar on the canon side and it'll filter down into the smaller cameras but man it's a great time to be a photographer and uh i think we're going to start to see uh brand new types of work that are going to take advantage of this amazing leap in uh being able to capture in very little light high quality images absolutely cool all right, uh, Mr. Ron Brinkman, I, you got a long URL in there. So, what, what is what is this dry sack thing? Uh, well, this is just uh, you know, I've in the last several weeks, I've actually spent quite a bit of time sort of in the in the backcountry, doing a little bit of a hiking and camping and that sort of thing. And so, my pick of this week is to just get a good uh, what they call a dry sack or a couple of dry sacks. Um, these are these are uh, relatively inexpensive. I'll put a show a link in the show notes to you know the one I happen to own and you can buy from Amazon, but. It's just basically sort of a little waterproof bag, and uh, you know, for ten, fifteen bucks or so, you can have a couple of these. Toss them into your your gear bag, and for in a situation where stuff is likely to get wet or may get wet, um, it's handy to have it around. You just sort of toss your your either stuff that you don't want to get wet, like camera equipment, in there, or your sandwich for lunch in there. And uh, you know, I, I had a bunch of stuff in the in the bag when I was doing this last hike in in Zion National Park where we were wading through waist-deep water for a good portion of a day. Um, I didn't actually have my camera in the bag. I was holding it up above the water level. But if anything else had gone in, at least uh, the rest of it would have been okay. Very cool. All right, Alex, I don't know that your pick is is technically legal since we already talked about it, but uh, I think you can go ahead with it anyway. <laughs> So this is this is the the uh, this is the the uh, the battle of the picks this week. So um, so my pick for the week is the seven D. So I've I've talked about the seven D a little bit. Um, and uh, if you're a Canon user, uh, even if you're not, take a look at it. Uh, I here's the thing that I have to say is that I I don't feel bad about buying the five D. <laughs> I, I just want to say that ahead of time. You can take a moment. Take a moment. I don't feel bad about it, but. 7D is really nice. <laughs> so, so the the um, they've it's not just that it's a it's a new camera. The interface has changed um, a lot. So um, there's an on and off switch, which is pretty exciting. Instead of the, just turning the lock all the way up, the um, it really you can see the video uh, convergence where it's no longer just live view. It's do you want to have a video camera or do you want to have a still camera? Um, there is uh, the um, for me the the range that it does auto bracketing is is higher now. Uh, to three rather than two, um, and it shoots twenty twenty three nine eight twenty five uh, twenty nine nine seven. Uh, it really is a, a really bona fide little video camera. Uh, here's what I will say as, as far as a drawback: uh, it is uh, at, at higher ISO, and this is why I'm still happy with my five Ds. At higher ISOs, 
I find that it's a little grainier, especially in the mm. video. The video is, is distinctly grainier uh, in the early test. We just got this on Friday, so or Thursday or something like that. So, so the um, we, the first thing we did is ah, let's look at the low I, the high ISO, and it's not as good as the five D uh, in 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 that respect. Um, but um, I find that the the action of the shutter feels a lot better. Uh, the autofocus I think is a lot snappier um, than the five D. It's actually one of my complaints about. Canon uh, focus compared to Nikon focus in general is that I find it to be sluggish um, uh, compared to my old Nikons. So, um, uh, and so I find that it's a lot more responsive uh, and it's just a really comfortable camera. The form factor is very similar. It feel, feels the same. And, and the biggest thing though, is that it's a lot of camera and it's a lot less money. Um, uh, the, if I think that pound for pound, dollar for dollar, uh, this is probably one of the best cameras out right now. If you look at the the value you're getting for the for the dollar, uh, I'm not saying I think that there's a, a lot of great stuff that uh, Nikon's putting out. I think that um, I think the 5D is great. Uh, but if I was gonna, if, if people are looking at it and want to choose just a great camera, I think this is. Uh, I do think this is going to eat into the future 5D sales um, because I, I do think that it's a it, in many ways, uh, unless you have very specific needs, is is a you know a spirit camera in a lot of ways. And I think that this is going to, you know, I think this is some of the controversy that's, that's shown up, but I, I have to pick it. And I have to say that, uh, you know, if we were going to buy more cameras, we'd buy more seventies and if the 70 existed when we had to buy the five D's for a project. Uh, we would have bought seventies and we would have been happy with them, you know? And so, uh, um, so anyway, that's the, that's my pick for the week, the Canon 70. All right. Canon 70. My pick is also illegal because we already talked about it. It's going to have to be Adobe Photoshop Lightroom 3 because that is, uh, that's a significant release this week and it's going to change the way that a lot of photographers work. So uh, that's my pick and I would suggest folks go head over to the link in the show notes and download it or just go to Adobe site and download it and play around with it. But I also have another follow-up pick. It's a little thing that I found on the show floor at uh, Photo Plus. It's called the, the Joby Gorilla Torch. And for the, those of you that are watching on video, you can see it now. It's a little, if you're familiar with the Gorilla Pod, uh, it's a miniature version of the Gorilla Pod, the legs, so the, so the fully articulated legs. But it also has an LED light on it that uh, goes up to 65 lumens. And on uh, it's powered by three AA batteries that it actually comes with. So this, I, I bought this thing particularly or specifically to uh, play around with iPhone photography because I can throw this thing in my bag and then uh, just aim a, a powerful beam of light at a certain thing and take a picture of it. Um, so that's why I got it. And it's pretty cool. I think it runs for like $30 and it's available from uh, the Gorillapod. I, I, called- I, I just have to say the Gorillapods in general are just outrageously cool. I, I had yeah. I have like three or four of them and, and we were doing a shoot. I think we were doing a live stream and a Flickr upload, you know, last week. And I was doing some time lapse stuff and I was just wrapping that gorilla, uh, gorilla pod to you know wherever I needed to have it in a studio. You know, it's, it's yeah. it was on a grid or it was on one of the shelving or whatever. And whatever I needed to do, and I was just like, I don't know what I do without these things. Yep. Awesome. Yeah, they're good yeah. for uh, they're awesome. speed light shooters too. Nikon speed light or any speed light shooter, you can uh, put a speed light on them and put them where you want them. So they're they're cool for that too. Yeah, yeah, definitely check those out. All right, well, that brings us to the end of another wonderful show. Very exciting. Um, very quickly, Alex, where can people find you if they're looking for you? Um, I'm on the Twitters. Always on All the Twitters? Of All of them. Uh, Alex Lindsay on the Twitters. Ron Brinkman, where can people find you? Ron Brinkman on the Twitters. 
Excellent. Steve Simon, same thing, I would imagine, correct? Yeah, Twitter slash Steve Simon. And I'm going to be doing a workshop called Approaching Assignments with a Fresh Eye at the International Center of Photography in New York, November 7th and 8th. So if you're in the city, come see me. And what, Very cool. And one thing before uh, uh, before we go, the uh, um, we are going to be doing more of the test live feeds from production days. Uh, so definitely, if you follow me, I'll be probably announcing them on my Twitter account. Like we're doing, we might give you another Twitter account eventually to do it. But as we test the stuff in the Pixel Core, we're going to be doing more and more live feeds, probably through live stream, which is what we're doing right now. Uh, but the um, uh, if you want to see us doing production live. Uh, make sure to uh, tune into that, and I'll put them up. You know, usually we're about to the stream, and if you want to check it out, and a lot of times we're answering questions on set when people are uh, uh, while we're working. One of the guys is usually answering it. So, so definitely, uh, you know, if you're following me on Twitter, you'll you'll see that. Very cool. And if you're looking for me online, you can find me on my blog, which will point you to my Twitter. It's frederickvan.com forward slash Twitter. And that brings us to the end of the show. It's time to take that lens cap off. <laughs>